Sparks are appearing across Kentucky. Students, educators, and citizen leaders strike a light as they spearhead next-generation initiatives. Their ideas will illuminate the path to Kentucky's future. We follow the light of these sparks to bring you the stories behind them. This is the Innovation Update. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the Innovation Update, your source for all innovative news in the bluegrass. My name is Josh Raymer. I'll be your host today. We have some very special guests on the show today, some guests that have achieved quite a high level of excellence in these STEM fields, some very accomplished STEM scholars, if you will. Today, we're talking to Goldwater-recognized students. That's right, students at colleges and universities throughout Kentucky that have been recognized by the extremely prestigious Goldwater Scholarship, which I believe one student at Western described to me as the Nobel Prize for college students. For those of you not as familiar with the Goldwater, it is a scholarship that was established by Congress in 1986 to recognize the former senator from Arizona. The scholarship identifies and honors students who excel in science, mathematics, and engineering, Winners receive $7,500 annually with which they can pay for undergraduate tuition, fees, books, room and board, that sort of thing. Now, this scholarship is extremely competitive. There were only 24 institutions where a scholar was named throughout the country. Out of the 1,100 applicants nationwide, only 282 were selected as scholars and fewer than 200 others received honorable mention. So to get recognized by the Goldwater in any form or fashion is a very esteemed accomplishment. This scholarship isn't just competitive nationally, though. It's tough to get out of your own university to have the chance to receive recognition. Each university is only allowed to submit four students' names to possibly be recognized by the Goldwater. And today we have the privilege of speaking to two of the four students who were submitted by the University of Kentucky and actually received honorable mentions. Uh, The first of which is Josiah Hanna. He is a computer science and mathematics major. He has a minor in cognitive science, and he's been doing research into artificial intelligence planning under uncertainty. Our second guest is David Spencer, who is a chemical engineering major, and he has been doing research into hydrogels and nanoparticles, and specifically uh, applications in drug delivery with those nanoparticles and hydrogels. First up, though, is Josiah, so let's give him a call and talk to him about his Goldwater recognition. Hello? Hey, Josiah, this is Josh Raymer with Innovate Kentucky. How are you doing today? Doing all right. How about yourself? Doing great. Thanks for taking time to talk to us. Um, we are reaching out to you because of a very special accomplishment. Um, you were recently recognized by the Goldwater Scholarship as an honorable mention at the University of Kentucky. And that's such a great achievement and so closely ties into the mission of Innovate Kentucky, uh, which is to spread the importance of the STEM disciplines throughout the state. Um, so I have to ask, how did you find out that you had received Goldwater recognition? Well, the application process was all handled through UK's Office of External Scholarships, and I worked with them with applying for the award. There was a committee reviewing my application, and uh, when the results came out, I received a call from the director of that office, and she told me how that had played out. I'm sure you were very excited to find out the news. Oh, yeah, I was. Well, this is obviously a huge honor, um, and... 
you know, I have to ask, we read a little bit on UK's website about uh, what areas of research um, were in your Goldwater application, but can you explain to us, uh, for those of us who aren't uh, uh, savvy with uh, technology or science might, like you might be, what areas of research or study did you highlight in your application? Okay, well, as a computer science and math major, it was it's computer science research and specifically uh, in the area of artificial intelligence. And what I've been focusing on is decision-making under uncertainty for intelligent agents like a computer. So when you have a – you need to plan out a uh, – solve a problem, and solving that problem involves you know, making a sequence of decisions, but the outcomes of each action you might take have uncertain effects. Mm-hmm. If, for instance, you plan you need to build something at your house and you have to go to the hardware store and another store and another store, you might decide, okay, well, I'll drive to that store. But along the way, unexpectedly, a wreck occurs and you uh, have to go a different way. Or, you know, your actions just – you can't necessarily assume that your uh, – the outcomes of your actions will give you the desired effect. So – that's how it is in the real world. So you have to have, if you're trying to develop realistic planners, they need to be able to account for that. Mm-hmm. So what I, my proposed project with Goldwater was there's been a lot of research into how to plan with uncertainty. I was looking at uh, when you're taking multiple actions at the same time and there's uncertainty, it's uh, called concurrent action planning mm-hmm. and that was what I focused on for that. Now, what are some real-world applications of um, this research? Is there a, kind of a market that you hope to see this research implemented uh, once you're finished with it? We've we've considered various applications in the research. One uh, that we considered was in um, the medical field is a doctor – a patient comes in with some condition and a doctor may prescribe a set of different drugs to them to treat it. Uh, myself, I had asthma treated and was on uh, a couple of steroids and some like anti-allergy medicines. And those, you can look at each prescribed a- drug as a different action. And those actions have interacting effects, you know, taking one medicine with another produces a different effect than just taking one of them by itself. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you might in complicated medical situations, especially with the elderly, you might end up prescribing more drugs after the initial prescription to help deal with the side effects of those. So you have uncertainty of how different drugs are going to interact and which might lead to prescribing more drugs or not. And so, you know, how do you plan for that? Gotcha. Okay. Now, computer science, artificial intelligence, uncertainty. I don't feel like these are things that kids just stumble into in elementary school or middle school. And and one big thing that we're really trying to push with this initiative is getting kids interested in the STEM fields at an early age uh, before they um, perceive them to be an unfeasible uh, future uh, course of study for them. So what, what led to your passion in these areas of study? If I hadn't enjoyed and been good at math, I probably wouldn't have got into computer science. Mm 
which has been a field that I've really enjoyed. And so if you're looking at getting kids involved in early age, I think it's good math teaching because I, I wasn't uh, in elementary school. Math was one of my worst subjects and uh, I had a really good teacher my first year of middle school. And I think um, the following year after that, I, I had a, a bad quarter in math, but other than that, I've been an A student in there since and usually at the top of the class. And so I think just um, influential teachers in math is really what got me into computer science, which led to the topics that I'm talking about now. Absolutely, yeah. Teachers are so critical in uh, students' development, and it's great to hear that you had some that inspired you to uh, pursue a um, course of study in one of the STEM disciplines. Um, Now, what we talked about some real-world applications, um, some fields that you might see your research implicated, but what is the ultimate hope for the research you are currently conducting? The application that we've been looking at for modeling a lot of the problems in the lab that I work, and there's a lot of different facets to this project, and I'm only working on one part of it, but is modeling academic advising in the American educational system. Interesting. So in this isn't this isn't necessarily typical of a lot of course disciplines, but at UK the computer science has these long chains of courses that you you have to start with one course and it's a prereq for the next, which is a prerequisite for the next. Mm-hmm. And so you have to take them in specific orders and so we're looking at planning under that domain, and obviously you have uncertainty in that you take a course, which is an action, or you take a set of courses. Each semester I choose about five courses to take, and there's some uncertainty to whether I'll get an A or a B or a C or fail it or uh, withdraw from the course. So it's, it's planning for that. Well, that's really fascinating. I know that that can be kind of a maze sometimes for students to have to navigate. And a lot of uncertainty comes with that, so that seems to be very applicable to what you guys are doing. Um, so let's let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. Obviously, we know kind of the research you're conducting now. But what are your academic or career ambitions? Well, right after undergraduate, I, I want to go on to get my master's and I, th- I definitely think I would like to go on to get my Ph.D. after that. I don't, as far as after I finish my formal education, I don't really have a strong desire to stay in academia. Mm-hmm. So a, a company that focuses on research, that uh, such as Google or IBM, where, um, you know, research is a big is a heavy part of what they do, then I think that would be an area that I could enjoy. Absolutely. Those are two two big names that would obviously, I think, love someone with your skill set. Um, a part of this initiative also is really getting the word out about how important innovation is and innovative thinking. And, you know, innovation is not just a process, but it's a whole way of thinking. And we really want to stress the importance of innovative innovative thinking, especially with young students. And so I want to ask, why do you think it's important for students to begin researching and 
thinking in an innovative fashion early in their academic careers? Well, it's just, it's so much more rewarding and you enjoy, you enjoy your education so much more when you're working independently and you have a chance to challenge yourself and just, I mean, you can go to college and you can have a generic education and just go to your courses, but if you're not getting yourself out, you know, innovating, working independently, you know, challenging yourself in those ways, it's not going to be as enjoyable. And it's the same thing in high school and beyond is the, I, I believe that the kids who do the best are the kids who are challenged and rise to meet those challenges and enjoy it. Well, that's something, too, that we see uh, too much of, which is students at a young age thinking that STEM fields are unfeasible for college or for the workplace. What would you say to a student um, to try to get them to see the importance of, of STEM and possibly pursuing a, a career or, um, you know, a college course of study in one of those disciplines? It's just like I'd let them know that there's a lot of opportunities for, you know, jobs, for personal challenges, personal growth, and a fulfilling career. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who did show interest in it, you know, it's just they should know that the opportunities are there. Sometimes you have to go after them. It's it's getting, you know, there's a lot of opportunities at the same time given to STEM students, stuff like the Goldwater. Mm-hmm. And I came from a high school where there was a math and science program. And I think, I think there's a lot of opportunities for STEM students. So I would let them know that they're there. And sometimes you have to go get them. Well, that's great advice. And we, Certainly appreciate you kind of, you know, speaking to the importance of that at such a young age. And uh, that was all we had. And uh, Josiah, we really appreciate you uh, taking time to talk to us. And we wish you the best of luck um, in France. I believe that's where you said you're going for uh, for an internship this summer. Yes. Well, uh, thank you very much. I'm honored you considered to interview me. And uh, we'll be in touch and keeping track of this uh, this research as it develops. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. All Take right. care. You too. Bye-bye. So that was Josiah Hanna doing some very cool things in the field of computer engineering and artificial intelligence planning. Next up, we're going to talk to David Spencer and see uh, what kind of research he is doing in the field of chemical engineering. So let's give him a call. Hey, David, this is Josh Raymer with Innovate Kentucky. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing just fine. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us today. Uh, we just got done innovating, uh, interviewing your um, UK classmate, Josiah Hanna, who was doing some interesting research in computer science and artificial intelligence. And we we're reaching out to both of you because you received um, a huge honor in the academic world, which was recognition from the Goldwater Scholarship. Uh, for your work, and I have to ask, how did you find out that you had received Goldwater recognition? Well, I guess it was a fairly um, in-depth process, but uh, the first step was I was actually, I received an email from um, the Office of Undergraduate Research uh, here at the University of Kentucky, and they actually um, had um, narrowed me down uh, just on a list of candidates and just encouraged me to start the application process. 
And so um, once I was uh, identified as a candidate, um, my uh, research mentor, uh, he really encouraged me to, uh, to pursue this. And so um, I went to one of the information sessions and uh, gathered information um, about what the Goldwater Scholarship was. And, um, you know, then I got involved in the application process. And, you know, I wrote the essay and, um, you know, filled out some of the background information about myself. And it was – saw that it was, you know, it was encouraging the STEM disciplines. And then along with that, it was just um, interested in people involved in research. And um, I'd actually been involved in research starting my freshman year. And so this was, a, you know, just a way that I thought I could, you know, just try to show off some of the things that I had done and, you know, hopefully uh, get a recognition through that. And so um, I went through the application process and um, with some help from the Office of Undergraduate Research and as well as the um, Department of External Scholarships here at the university, um, they helped me get through um, the University of Kentucky. Um, there was actually – they had to narrow it down to four candidates. Mm-hmm. And so uh, – they, um, they, uh, I filled out the application, and they um, honored me and by endorsing um, my application for the national, um, uh, the national competition. And so instead of that, I, I revised my essays and things like that and submitted it. And um, a couple months later, um, the Office of External Scholarships contacted me and that notified me that I had um, received a Goldwater Scholarship Honorable Mention. And um, you know, that's something that I was very proud of, and hopefully that's something that um, – you know, I can use in the future to help, um, you know, encourage my career uh, in uh, the engineering side of, uh, you know, STEM. And uh, with that, just help my research uh, career move forward. That is an incredible recognition. And uh, I think that's something that we want our listeners to understand, which is the Goldwater Scholarship process is very involved and it's very competitive. Not only are you being judged against other students within the state, you're also being judged against students at your own university, so to come out of that uh, with being one of the four from the University of Kentucky and also getting an honorable mention, that is a huge accomplishment. And I liked how you, um, you phrased it, that you wanted to show off your research. What areas did you highlight in your application with your research? Um, well, I'd actually I've been involved in research for about a year uh, preceding that. And so my background was in um, hydrogels and nanoparticles. And so I guess I'll just give some background on uh, these two areas as, you know, some people aren't as familiar with them. So hydrogels, what they are, they're three-dimensional cross-linked hydrophilic polymer systems. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of words there. But um, what it is is they're, um, they really like water, and so they're able to imbibe large amounts of water or biological fluids. Uh-huh. And so I guess specifically what I worked with was a set of these hydrogels that were biodegradable, meaning that whenever they were placed in water, they'll degrade. And so this is very similar, um, you know, if we were to use them inside the body, they'll degrade under physiological conditions. And so, you know, this class of hydrogels, we're really interested in being able to either implant them in the body or use them inside the body in some way because they resemble a living tissue in the body. And you can also, once you implant them, they'll degrade over a period of time and there's no need for a secondary removal process. So these, just, these systems are a way, um, I guess, that we're looking into drug delivery and things like that. And so along with hydrogels, I've also worked with nanoparticles. And um, I've worked with a couple different types, specifically gold and iron oxide nanoparticles. Mm-hmm. And so first of all, iron oxide, they actually have the ability to remotely heat. And so they're actually super paramagnetic. So once, if you place them in an alternating magnetic field, you can get heat. And that's been used for um, cancer therapies and things like that. And I guess taking a step back from that, nanoparticles in general, they have the high um, surface area to volume ratio. 
So you're, you can that allows you to put a large amount of drug or protein or something on the surface that can then be used for you know a therapy or something like that. And the size scale, um, due to the you know natural clearances in the body, um, the nanoparticle uh, size scale of you know about 100 nanometers, it allows I guess for the most advantageous um, retention inside the body, so you get the most therapeutic effect because they um you know stay in the bloodstream longer. But specifically, um, I guess for the research I highlighted in my application, um, I was focused on gold nanoparticles. And um, these particles, I guess the reason we um, mainly focused on them was because they're easily synthesized as well as functionalized. And functionalized simply means that we're able to attach things to the surface of these particles. Mm-hmm. And along with that, they're also relatively non-toxic. So just we were trying to um, develop a model and where we could incorporate these nanoparticles inside the hydrogels and then um, release stable particles that could be used for a therapy. And so, I guess, getting more specifically into the project, um, I was involved in um, utilizing uh, a novel methodology and where we used these hydrogels and then trapped gold nanoparticles inside. And then once they were entrapped within this network, so we have the hydrogels, and then within this network we have nanoparticles, and they're entrapped by the polymer um, chains that make up the hydrogels. Mm-hmm. And so what we did is we carried out different reactions by immersing them in organic solvents. And we needed the organic solvents, such as um, ethanol and dimethyl sulfoxide. We used these organic solvents because uh, the gel wouldn't degrade under these conditions. And so we were able to uh, introduce different reagents that would modify the surface of the gold or either react to the gold in some way. And we carried out a chain of reactions where the gold nanoparticles, which were entrapped by this uh, polymer network, we were able to functionalize the surface of it, and then at the end, we uh, degraded these hydrogels in water, and the end result was um, a, a surface-modified gold nanoparticle. And so you might be wondering, you know, what the need of, you know, doing this complex step with, you know, starting with a hydrogel and incorporating nanoparticles, but uh, due to the high surface area to volume ratios associated with it, these gold nanoparticles like to agglomerate. So if you're just doing a chemistry in which you have gold nanoparticles in solution, um, the particles tend to um, group together and fall out of solution, and you can't um, attach things to the surface as easily. So um, the whole procedure that we did um, allowed us to release more stable particles that had more drug attached to them, or at least that was the idea. And so the end result was um, the application for it was to use for Alzheimer's disease. Oh, okay. And so eventually, um, once we developed a uh, working model, the goal was to... Um, instead of just attaching just any enzyme or protein to the surface of the gold, we were going to attach nephrolysin, which is um, a drug that's being looked at for Alzheimer's disease, just mm-hmm. for therapies and things. So the goal um, eventually was to, you know, use this methodology, um, attach nephrolysin to the surface, and then there's actually additional steps that we could do to further um, conjugate the surface to increase retention time in vivo. But the idea is that we could use um, the hydrogel system as, um, a subcutaneous implanted depot for release of a um, therapeutic over a period of time to help with um, Alzheimer's disease. Wow, that's that's very in depth and um, interesting. And a couple, I heard you mention nanoparticles quite a bit, and also hydrogels. Um, and it sounds like yeah. just from what you explained that these um, nanoparticles and hydrogels are used in drug delivery, say, for cancer, or you said Alzheimer's. Um, So is this a more effective uh, drug delivery system than what we currently have? Um, It's 
I don't know if, um, I guess at the moment it's still in development. And so we're hoping to, you know, use this methodology to get through a lot of the, um, you know, current. I guess it would be evidence eventually. We're not quite there yet. But currently a lot of the drugs are just delivered in solution or things like that. Mm-hmm. And so the advantage of using a nanoparticle system is to increase the retention time in the body. Mm-hmm. So whereas a, part, or a drug in solution may only circulate for a few minutes or a few hours, the idea is that the nanoparticle delivery system and the use of um, this novel methodology will not only enhance the amount of drug you can get loaded on the nanoparticle, but it will also incre- um, enhance the amount of time that it stays in the body. And therefore, as it circulates, it will be able to um, you know, accumulate and uh, whatever the target is. So if it's a, you know, it'll be able to accumulate in the tumor tissue or make its way to the brain or whatever the case may be. So yes, eventually the idea is that, you know, this, instead of, you know, being cleared, um, you know, in a matter of just a few minutes or a few hours, the idea is that we can either have, you know, a sustained release over a period of weeks or months or even, you know, have a system that can deliver these nanoparticles it's more uh, efficiently and, you know, to where you don't either need repeated treatments or you can, you know, just, um, I guess mainly the idea is that you can have a single treatment that'll last for a longer time and be more effective than just, you know, the um, need for either, you know, treatments every day or repeated injections over, you know, multiple hours. That sounds amazing. Uh, the the chance to reduce the amount of medicine, it sounds like, that someone would have to take for something like Alzheimer's, is that kind of what I'm understanding is that you wouldn't have to take the medicine as much? Yes. Whether, you know, a lot of treatments involve, you know, injections or, you know, IVs over, you know, uh, several hours at a time. Mm-hmm. This idea is either you could, you know, get a single, if you had the hydrogel and you're able to implant it and then have a sustained release over a period of time, that would, you know, you'd only have to do a treatment, you know, once every couple of weeks or even once a month or something. Or even if you're able to develop, you know, a solution of these nanoparticles that was more stable, you could, you know, reduce the amount of injections you had to have by, you know, five or tenfold. So, wow. you know, overall it's to reduce the, you know, amount of times that you need these treatments. That's an incredible, worthwhile goal, and I hope that you guys can keep researching this and, and get close to accomplishing that goal for people with cancer, people who suffer from Alzheimer's. That would be a relief, I'm sure, for them to not have to take their medicine as much. Uh, now, what was it that led to your your passion in these areas of research? Well, I guess I, you know, I'm a chemical engineering major, and so I guess I'll go back to um, you know just why I chose chemical engineering, and that was just mainly because I had a really, really strong interest in chemistry and math and problem solving and related topics. And you know, when I was first coming to the University of Kentucky, I'd always I was set on chemical engineering as my career path. But I was more interested in, you know, I was also interested in healthcare applications and things like that. And so I really got interested in the pharmaceutical applications associated with chemical engineering mm-hmm. and the research that, you know, would allow me to get into the development of pharmaceutical products and drug delivery devices. And, I mean, a lot of, a lot of my passion comes from I've had, you know, various family members with, that have struggled with, you know, dementia, which is, you know, um, part of Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. and also with cancer and things like that. So I was really looking for a way that, you know, I could, you know, combine my love for chemistry and math and problem solving with, you know, um, the just enrichment of, you know, the current therapies for, you know, um, diseases such as cancer and Alzheimer's and things that people struggle with and there aren't really um, highly developed therapies for. And so that's, 
yeah, that was um, part of my inspiration. And then just um, the opportunity presented itself for me to get involved in research, you know, at the borderline between chemical engineering and, you know, pharmaceutical sciences and things like that. So, I, you know, I was really interested in, um, you know, the opportunities that presented themselves there. Absolutely. That's really great motivation when it's something personal, I feel like, because you're always more motivated if you have a personal tie to it. Definitely. Um, now, what, looking beyond your research, what are your academic or career ambitions? What do you hope to do once you once you graduate from the University of Kentucky? Well, currently, I'm really interested in the research side of things. So I'm looking to pursue um, a Ph.D. or doctoral degree in chemical engineering. But with that, I'm looking, like, I'm looking at focusing on specifically drug delivery devices and um, ways of enhancing the current cancer therapies or, you know, therapies for associated diseases. And then um, my goal once I, um, you know, pursue that doctoral degree is I'm, uh, I plan to pursue a career in research specifically associated with the development of, you know, enriching these therapies and especially the engineering of novel drug delivery devices that can really just revolutionize, revolutionize. Um, the current um, way that you know therapies are delivered and um, the current treatments that are out there. That's that's incredible. I mean, the fact that research that you are doing at your university as an undergrad could have those kind of far-reaching impacts is exactly what we want students in the state to understand: is that you don't just sit in a lab and you don't just do research, but your research has implications and impacts beyond your laboratory and that's really something that we talked with Josiah about as well was that this initiative is really trying to get students interested in STEM and to help them see the importance yeah. of those disciplines early in their academic career so they can maybe pursue that in college or as a career. Right. What would you say, why is it important for students to begin researching and, and thinking in an innovative fashion early in their academic careers? Well, I know for me, just taking classes there always seems to be a right or wrong answer or an accepted way to do things. So, you know, whether you're presented with a math problem, there's always a right answer. If you're presented with, you know, a scenario, the teacher generally has, you know, an idea of what's the best. When you get into research, there's, you know, there is literature out there. There's things that have been done that, you know, are things that you can model, um, you know, your research after. But really it's up to you to figure out, you know, how to get things done. And so that's really where the innovation comes in. You you know, you're presented with a hurdle, you know, something something doesn't work, you can't figure out what's going wrong. I mean, you have to figure out a way to get around that. Whereas, you know, in the classroom, there's, you know, you have a textbook that'll generally guide you to the solution and research you, it's up to you. I mean, you've got to figure out how to, you know, how to, you're presented with the data that you don't know why it's like that. You have to figure out, you know, what caused it. And you have to, you know, use those thinking critical problem-solving skills, but you also have to, you know, be creative and, you know, innovate, find a new way to, um, you know, get around something, you know, there, you know, something might do the complete opposite of what you want. So you have to you know, figure out how to use that to your advantage or something like that. So, I mean, that's really where I see, um, you know, innovation as a key. And, um, I mean, it's being able to parallel. Um, I was able to start in the second semester of my freshman year. So, you know, I've been able to, you know, see things in the classroom and then use that, um, in the research that I've done, but I've also, you know, come across things that I've done in research, and then that's before I see it presented in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so when I see that, I can really, you know, I have, you know, something to base what I'm learning off of, and it just helps, you know, everything makes so much more sense. So 
it's, you know, if you're interested in, you know, solving problems and getting into, you know, real-world applications, um, you know, engineering and, um, you know, the chemistry, math, and um, things related to it, I mean, that's a great way. Um, you know, a lot of people think, you know, it's just theory. You know, what can I do with this? But there are so many ways, and as can be seen um, in all the different research labs across the university, there's so many ways that you can get involved and make an impact that, you know, and it all comes back down to, you know, being able to solve um, problems that you're faced with in an innovative and creative way. Absolutely. Moving beyond um, the, the research and academia, we want to stress the importance of innovation to Kentucky's economic future. And there's been a lot of research done that suggests there is a high return on investment for innovative thinking and innovative business strategies within the state. If someone came up to you and said, and said, David, why is innovation crucial to the economic future of Kentucky? What, what would you say to them? You know, a lot of times, you know, we get really, really comfortable and, um, you know, doing things, you know, the way that it's been done and, you know, doing things, you know, it's been done like this for years and we continue doing that. But a lot of times, you know, there's simple creative ways in which, you know, we can completely revolutionize and, um, you know, think of new ways and, um, you know, cross new barriers with new technologies and new things like that to where we can just, um, you know, we can do the same thing that needs to be done for a lot cheaper and a lot more efficiently. And it's just because, you know, just, you know, being creative and, um, you know, thinking of a different way to go about getting the same answer. You know, you can do that and you can save, you know, a lot of time, a lot of money, and then you can, you know, go on to bigger and better things with that. So, you know, a lot of times we get stuck doing, you know, this is the way that I was taught to do it. And a lot of times you get presented with things and you're like, you just think that that's the only way that you can. But it's always important just to continue, you know, just take everything with a grain of salt. And, you know, just ask yourself if that's really, you know, the only way that it can be done. Or can I think of a way to do it, you know, better, more efficiently in a way that will, you know, help save time and money and just really um, just help things progress and, you know, get new and more important things done. That's a great philosophy, uh, looking at different ways to get the same result in a more efficient manner. I love that. That's exactly what we're all about here is innovative way of thinking that allows you to look at common tasks in a whole new light. And I'm glad that we have people like you out there who are helping kind of lead that charge for a different way of looking at things. Um, I can't say enough how much uh, we have appreciate you coming on here and talking to us about your research and about innovation and the STEM fields. And we'll be keeping in touch with you to see how your research develops as your career continues at the University of Kentucky and beyond. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Absolutely, David. We hope you have a great day. You too. All right. Bye-bye. That was David Spencer telling us a little bit about his research, and you really have to appreciate the mindset that he has about innovation and why don't we look at something that we've done the same way for a 100 years differently to see if we can do it more efficiently and in a more cost-effective manner. That's what we're all about here with Innovate Kentucky, finding new approaches to old problems. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to these Goldwater Scholars talk about their research. It certainly is exciting to see the things that are happening at universities across Kentucky, and we hope to bring you more stories like this of students excelling in the STEM fields. But uh, for this episode, I am Josh Raymer. We hope to see you back here next time. 